Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Hello and welcome back to ACRAC. I'm Jed Wolpaw, and I'm thrilled to have with me today Dr. Pam Johnson, who is the Associate Professor of Radiology here at Johns Hopkins. She's the Vice Chair of Quality and Safety in the Department of Radiology. She's also the Residency Program Director, so my colleague in that way, and she is the Physician Lead for our High Value Care Committee here, which is the reason that she's coming on the show today. We're going to talk about high value care in general, but also specifically related to anesthesia and critical care, since that's our audience. Pam, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jed. Thank you for inviting me and for allowing me to talk about my favorite topic, high-value care. <laughs> no, I'm so glad you could come on, and I know this is something near and dear to your heart and something that I think is really relevant to our listeners. So let's start with the very basics here. Yeah. You know, Let's tell people, what do we mean when we say high-value care? What is that? So the, you'll see different definitions, but the basic principle is high-quality care at a low cost. And the, the challenge becomes in defining what is cost actually so and people different entities may have a different definition of what they what's important to them in terms of cost from our perspective it's really about the cost of care for the patient so our mission is to improve quality and improve safety in ways that eliminate unnecessary costs for patients and so when we are talking about cost to the patient are we taking into account that many patients aren't paying the full cost, at least their insurances, but that's what we mean, like the cost that's charged to the patient, right. whoever ends up paying that, right. whether it's and the patient or the insurance. I, I like to look at it as more than just financial cost. I think there's a personal cost to a lot of this as well. Like, mm-hmm. for example, I'm a radiologist, and I, I, I'm, I get upset when I see patients who have studies that were not necessary because I know that they're expensive, because they involve radiation, for example, if it's a CT. But Additionally, the patient had to take the day off from work, had to come in here, had the anxiety of wondering what the scan was going to show, and all of those costs. So when we eliminate an unnecessary test or an unnecessary treatment, we also eliminate all of those downstream effects or the, you know, the anxiety leading up to it and, and the other potential risks associated with it. Right. That's a great point. So it's not just a matter of financial costs. There's a lot of other things going on here, whether it's a patient in the hospital or in an outpatient setting. Um, Unnecessary tests can have very, very real consequences, as you said. So when we think about going about how to address this, are there certain um, approaches? Are there certain processes that people kind of go about to try to reduce unnecessary testing? Certainly. So there are a number of different interventions. And I just want to back up for one second and just add one thing that I think value goes be, high value care quality improvement goes beyond just reducing the tests and treatments because mm-hmm. that's only really a small part of the quality improvement work that has to be done. It's improving efficiencies um, in ter- that, that contribute to length of stay. It's improving discharge transitions so that patients don't come back in the hospital because if you look at the highest, the things that contribute most to patients' health care burden, financial burden, is... Uh, emergency room visits and hospitalizations. So that's really where we need to focus a lot of work as well. Right. So the, pro- the, the so there's a wide range of processes in 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 
answering your question. Right. And right. so I think that's really interesting because I would imagine that one of the areas where this gets tricky is you. I could imagine a clinician saying, all right, well, if I want to make sure this patient has the best chance of not getting readmitted, I want to do every test on the book right. before they leave so that I catch anything, right? So right. how do you... You know, how do we know, I guess is the question, how do we know what's necessary and what's not so that we can provide all that's necessary without providing unnecessary things? That's a great question. And I think we're actually in the process of investigating what we have to do. It's an area where we really don't have all the answers yet. We have to do a lot of uh, work to determine where we need to improve our the way we practice and then what's the best way of making that, of implementing that quality improvement. So we, you know, we have a research conference uh, every year, and that's exactly what one of the purposes is to investigate the areas that need to be improved, and then how to actually address the problems. Great. So let's talk about some places where we yep. know there's unnecessary use. So, for example, I remember when I was a med student, probably it had started to change a little by the time I was a resident, but certainly when I was a med student, rotating in the ICU, every every ICU patient got a chest X-ray every day. That was just Nobody questioned it. That's just how it went, right? Now we know that's not necessary. So that's something that right. that we know. Are there other areas like that, that that we can point to and say, we're still investigating a lot of stuff, but there's some things that we know for sure? Absolutely. So as you mentioned, daily chest X-rays, inpatient labs, repeat inpatient labs. Um, there was the, the paper that I shared with you where they reduced laboratory tests and chest X-rays in the intensive care unit that was published by some uh, surgeons at Cedar sinai was a really great initiative, and there are a number of ways that you can help drive this improvement. You can have alerts in the electronic medical record, but people get tired of seeing them. I think education is a really key part of the whole process, just as particularly before you roll out some kind of an alert, just educate people, and then they won't necessarily make the order that precipitates the alert, right? Right. So... Um, but really, I think one of the most powerful drivers of, for uh, performance improvement are those feedback reports. So we had a big initiative that was done run here to reduce transfusions by Steve Frank, and they basically mapped out the transfusion use for surgeons and anesthesiologists mm-hmm. and then posted it on the wall, <laughs> essentially. Right. That's a really powerful tool. And we're now seeing that being used more for ordering pulmonary CTA in the emergency department, giving ordering providers feedback about how often they have a positive study relative to the mean. Right. And I think that's a really, what, what we've, we're really learning is that that's an incredibly powerful tool, especially when combined with education and clinical decision support. I think it's going to become one of the things that, that contributes to most of the successful projects. Yeah, that's great. And so do you have any feel for whether those lists, and so, you know, in other words, what we're saying here is we're going to put every every surgeon up on the board or every anesthesiologist or both, and we're going to have a graph that shows how many units of blood per patient you give on average, right? Does it have to, do you have to name names? Is it more effective if it's got people's names, or can you have a, a random number that's, you know, so that I know who I am, but nobody else knows? Well, I haven't done this part yet, but I think that if I did, I would want to keep it anonymous because I like the fact that my colleagues like me. (laughs) However, I think that he actually named, had their names up there. Right. So I think Steve in his blood project did put surgeons' names. Yes. Um, And so, yeah, that clearly that's effective. Whether (laughs) or not it's effective anonymously, uh, I have a feeling that there's some... 
um, that people have looked at this and found that actually it can have effect even without a name. Yeah. Um, that basically seeing that you're on the high end, even if no one else knows you are, can still be effective. People don't like to be outliers. Yes, I agree. But I do agree that it probably is better. To, it, it will be more successful if you have their names. Right. Yeah. So you have to be brave enough to be willing to, to <laughs> suffer the wrath. What about um, what other processes uh, have people used? So we talked about provider education, um, EMR alerts. What about checklists? Or do checklists play a role? I think that checklists are very helpful. They, there were checklists used in that ICU paper that I shared with you, and we've seen checklists be very successful in, in other quality impro- quality and safety improvement initiatives. So yeah. yes, um, you know, but I. I I really believe that a combination of multiple interventions is what's key. Yeah. And are you are there any ways in radiology in which you guys are using checklists or anything else? I think they're using them in interventional radiology in terms of, you know, preparing patients for for their procedures, but what we're primarily using in radiology are is clinical decision support and education. But we've tailored it really to to the setting, inpatient, outpatient, and emergency. They're all very different. Okay. Yeah. And do you find that um, targeting, at least in an academic center, targeting residents is more effective than targeting attendings? I would imagine it's mostly the residents who are writing the orders. I find that if you want to be successful in any project, you have to engage the residents. Yeah. <laughs> First of all, just to help you design the work that you're going to do, because they're the ones who understand best whether or not what you what you're proposing is going to affect how they be how they practice how they order right. so yes they, they have to be part of the entire process not just the targeting of it right so designing Absolutely. the intervention yeah figuring out how to target it towards their colleagues exactly and also the fact that that it's all part of a team trying to do something together and it's always much more successful that way right rather than just the faculty coming in and dropping something on them right right yeah so the, you've mentioned the the article that you shared with me earlier, and we'll put that up, uh, a link to that on the uh, show notes on the website. Um, but I believe that what that showed was uh, this team that looked at using a variety of things, as you said, kind of multimodal education um, to do a variety of things. They reduced blood gases by more than 50%, uh, the ordering of blood gases. They also reduced the use uh, of or the ordering of CBCs, BMPs, coagulation studies, and chest X-rays, all by significant percentages didn't have any worse outcomes. So that, I guess, is proof right there that these were unnecessary tests if it didn't change the outcomes to stop ordering them all the time. And they saved $700,000 per year, which is no no small amount. So um, do you think that uh, essentially as we try these things out, we'll just sort of look at outcomes? And if we you see that to. the outcomes aren't any, better, aren't any worse, then we know we were ordering them unnecessarily. Yeah, we absolutely have to look at the outcomes. That's why it's really important that academic centers are involved in this work and implement these improvements that are, they have to be based on, you know, society um, clinical practice guidelines, really strongly evidence-based recommendations. But we know that recommendations don't drive practice change. So we sort of have to be the accountability arm and implement the change, but you still have to measure the outcome and make sure that that we don't have some unanticipated detrimental effect on patient care. Right. So you and I were discussing earlier, uh, one of my co-residents back when I was a resident, Catherine Chen, who's a fantastic person and a great researcher, published uh, a big New England Journal article a couple years ago looking at the data for preoperative testing before cataract surgery and found that it varied hugely by 
provider and didn't matter at all in terms of outcomes. So you don't have to order any preoperative testing before a cataract, and yet some people order the full gamut, and uh, it doesn't have any effect on patient outcome, but of course it increases cost. And as you mentioned, someone's got to go get their blood drawn, they've got to get an EKG. Mm -hmm. So if you're ordering these things, uh, then you know that's problematic. So I think there is data out there, and that's, as you said, looking at the data, looking at the guidelines to help you know when to do it. Another thing, um, I don't know if this is something you found in the literature on this topic, but I know we've started now in our ICUs, we will review what we call frequent labs on rounds. So the ner- we'll ask the nurse, what are we getting on this patient every day, right? What are you, what are you drawing Q4 hours? Um, and then we'll think, do we need that lab every four hours? Do That's we great. need it even every 12 hours? Um, and I, uh, is that, do you find that kind of just kind of check-ins, does that tend to be an effective tool to think about things? I think it's a great tool. I, don't, I think we don't do enough of it. But that's how you really, and that's how you educate the house staff on how they're going to practice, and then they'll take that with them. Right. We, we tried to do that in radiology. We sent a senior resident up to the floor to round with the teams, and it was incredibly effective. And everybody learned the problem is the manpower for, for cross-specialty uh, teams like that. But I think, it's, I think that's a great way of, of making sure that you're doing really high-quality work. You have a whole team together, and the fact that you have the nursing staff with you. These teams really need to be multidisciplinary with doctors, nurses, pharmacy, you know. Absolutely. I I was going to say the other huge help we have here, we're very lucky to have pharmacists around with us in the ICUs. And I found all the time I find that our pharmacist will say, you know, uh, this patient doesn't need a PPI any longer. They've been extubated, uh, but it's still on the order set is, can we get rid of that? You know, or they'll find that we ordered antibiotics three days ago when we were worried about an infection, but now all the cultures are negative, but the antibiotics are written to continue indefinitely. And so both having someone look at that so we can try to get rid of that stuff. And then the other thing that I know has been talked about, and I don't know to what extent it's been initiated, but is having mandatory cutoff periods where, for example, antibiotics will fall fall off after three days if they're not renewed. Yes, we have done a little bit of that. We're starting to do some of that uh, with with C. difficile testing, and mm-hmm. and it's funny. I just got an email about this yesterday. You know, where else can we implement this kind of a, an intervention in in the electronic record where things fall off? We also kind of want to. We try to reduce. We try to encourage the house staff not not to be ordering everything repetitively. It's different on the floor, obviously, than the intensive care unit, right? right? But um, it's, it's it's still a challenging area because of concerns that something might be missed. Right. And so that's another question I have for you is, you know, I can't, I imagine that when you talk about this or you give grand rounds on this, people must ask, you know, sure, I'd be happy to do that. I would love to follow all of these guidelines you're giving me and cut back on my bordering if only we lived in a less litigious society. Right. So people are worried about getting sued if they miss something. What do you say to those people? Well, I, I can understand why. We haven't done very well with tort reform, and I can definitely understand why. But I think the solution to that is for all of us to sort of band together. We created that National High Value Alliance with the mission that if we all do this together and if we publish the safety outcomes to show that this is the right thing to do, I think that that will help remove some of the fears of litigation. But there's just a lot of work to do to to give ordering doctors the confidence that they need that they're not going to miss something 
another great example of where I mean, imaging is a, a big hurdle in imaging for pulmonary embolism. Nobody wants to miss a pulmonary embolism, right? Right. And that, that's ubiquitous across all practice settings. But now, as a result of it, we're finding tiny pulmonary emboli that aren't significant. The patients are getting anticoagulated, and then they have a, the risk of a massive hemorrhage, which we see, actually, several right. times a year. So, you know, that's one of the – imaging carries carries risks. And so, as a radiologist, since I have the opportunity to be speaking <laughs> to a lot of people, I just want them to realize the risks of not just something like that, example I gave you, but of finding other things that then need to be proven that they're benign, right. that, that patients end up have under, having to undergo biopsies and all these tests because of something else that was on the scan, because right. the, the imaging, the resolution's so good now, we see these things. So these things really need to be considered when you're ordering imaging right. exams. So it sounds like, you know, and I would agree that people can take comfort in knowing that we're not asking people to kind of be the first person ever not to order something, right? right? I mean, we're saying once there's a well-established guideline that says you don't need to do this, we're not asking people to make new evidence, although if they want to go out and do some studies, that'd be great, but we're asking them exactly. to follow the evidence, right? Exactly, exactly. And so when there is definitive evidence, as, as we know, it can take at least 10 years, if not more, for, for, practice, uh, for, for practice to match the evidence. Right. I mean, transfusions are a great example. There's a lot of evidence. There's uh, Transfusions is probably... Reducing unnecessary transfusions is the best high-value care quality improvement project that exists because you actually improve outcomes when you, right? But I'm a lot older than you, so you weren't trained <laughs> the way I was where you just gave two units and you didn't think about it, right? right? And, and people are just stuck practicing that way. And so it's only been in the last five years that we've changed practice here. And I know through my experience with the other centers that I work with that a lot of places still haven't improved practice. Not only are you going to help that patient, you're going to increase the blood supply for patients who do need it. And it's just, it's really, it should be every institution's priority quality improvement project for the year. Right. And as you said, it's very doable. So Steve Frank here, one of our anesthesiologists, has uh, put together a fantastic campaign to try to reduce uh, and has been very successful in reducing blood transfusion. They've matched it up with the Choosing Wisely campaign, which I'm going to ask you about in a second. But basically, there are posters and pop-ups that say, why choose two when one will do, referring, of course, to units of packed blood cells. And they've shown a drastic reduction in the number of units given. As you said, and, and in fact, I do remember, it wasn't that long ago. I mean, even when I was a med student, it was routine. You needed blood, you got two units. Just It was like, mm -hmm. you know, right. why not? Give two. But now we know, of course, that the thresholds of seven for most people and eight for people with coronary artery disease are at least as good, if not better, than the higher thresholds. We know that there are real downsides to getting transfused and that there's increased risk with each unit. It's not like one transfusion equals one risk. Every unit is its own risk. And so uh, there's a lot of reasons to reduce that. So tell me a little bit about the Choosing Wisely campaign. What is that? So the Choosing Wisely campaign is was created by the American Board of Internal Medicine Foundation, and they invited medical societies to recommend five areas of practice where we could eliminate or reduce unnecessary tests, treatment, or procedures. And they got a, a tremendous engagement from like a large number of societies. There's hundreds of recommendations that have been published on their website. And each society started with five and then added five more. And they're, they're generally very much based on the, their clinical guidelines, but they're in areas where they know people have not adopted the practice that they should be doing yet. Right. So yes. 
That's great. And so um, can you give me it's, an example? Yeah. Obviously, blood blood is one, right? Right, so. blood is one. And one of the reasons I know a lot about this is because more than 100 of them pertain to imaging. Okay. <laughs> Everybody outside of imaging was targeting imaging. Right. And there are a lot of them that overlap, like... There's a lot that many of them pertain to lumbar spine imaging. Uh, daily chest radiographs in the unit is one of them. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, not ordering pulmonary CTA in low risk patients. Uh, you know, when, when to use coronary CTA, when not to use it. Um, so, and then some pertain to medications and uh, lab tests like CKMB that we used to use back when we were in medical school and residency. And it's amazing that places still order it. Still order CKMB. Not only is it not the test of choice for patients with potential acute coronary syndrome, it can actually be misleading. Right. When there's a better test out there. Yeah, and it. You know, I still in the unit will have new interns who came from other medical schools who will uh, order both a troponin and a CKMB. Still. And, uh, you know, they, it's like news to them that you don't need to do that. So Interesting. It, yeah. is, it is amazing how long it takes and how hard it is to change practice. In fact, despite the fact that we've had great success here with reducing blood transfusions and with doing one at a time, uh, you would think that, that we would be kind of have this would be settled here at Hopkins. But I routinely will have surgeons ask for two units. They'll say, can you give two units to this patient? Uh, and I'll say, okay, well, we'll give one. And then we'll check a hemoglobin, and if we need to give another, we'll give it. But there's still, they grew up in a time where this is how it was. You get it ingrained in your head as a resident, and you just, it's very hard to change that. Absolutely. I'm sure the same is true in imaging, that, you know, people are used to ordering certain imaging, or they see someone with a certain set of symptoms, and they think they need to get the CT or Right. Well, I think think an area that's relevant to intensive care unit practice or inpatient, inpatient practice in general, what we see is duplicitous imaging. So patient had a CT last four days ago for something, and now they they go into AKI. So they order a renal ultrasound, but they had perfectly normal kidneys four days ago. And there's no, I mean, there are patients who may develop obstruction in three days, but they usually have a, you know, a pelvic mass or, or a history of renal stones or something that predisposes. But when you have a patient, if you, if you're thinking a patient's in AKI and you want to make sure that it's not caused by obstruction, um, and, and I know that it, it doesn't have to be necessarily a pathologic obstruction. It may just be retention. But, you know, if they had a CT in the last 24 hours or 48 hours, maybe you can think that maybe we could hold off on the ultrasound, especially if they're on meds that contribute to that or they've had a hypotensive episode or some other reason. Right. Right. And I think ultrasound is an interesting one because I think, you know, as opposed to CT or uh, you know, I guess even chest x-ray, but mostly CT, people think, we providers think that ultrasound is completely without consequence. It's not, there's no radiation. Right. And we don't, we don't think about cost. So we do uh, financial costs. So we just think, yeah, so we got that CT a couple of days ago, but we might as well get the ultrasound. Right. Cause there's really no harm. You're not even going to pick up an incidental finding cause you, you can't see much. <laughs> right. 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 But the thing is, is from our perspective, we see we see that 99% of renal ultrasounds are normal, right? So right. so there's a middle ground somewhere. Right. Yeah. Now, let me ask you a question that I've thought about. I don't know the answer to this. What about, let's say that I want to know a hemoglobin on a patient. Is it more cost-effective for me to order just a hemoglobin than it is to order the whole CBC? Um, that is an interesting question because I just, we're actually writing a paper on, appropriate use of labs 
I'm, I'm, I'm not necessarily leading it because I'm a radiologist. Sure. But, but they were they were discussing different costs of a CBC and a CBC with diff, and for some of these, the cost is not that much different, mm-hmm. actually. But I can't answer that accurately. Okay, but there may so, be a difference. Yes, there may be a difference. So if you yeah, if you can think about limiting instead of ordering the entire metabolic panel, right, yeah. or at least finding out, right. So maybe it's worthwhile uh, to have some education for all of us uh, or at individual institutions around what does it cost, right. Um, now, you, you were mentioning to me before we, we uh, were on the air here, but about how it hasn't been that effective, you said, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but putting cost up on the EMR. Yes. So we did, Lenny Feldman did that here and found that it was not very helpful. I think he put up lab costs and maybe some imaging and maybe some medications, and it wasn't very effective. But I think it depends on the setting because in some instances, knowing the cost of you have two drugs, as you mentioned to me, and one right. of them is a lot more expensive you're probably going to not use it. Right. Right? Right. And I think that's exactly right. So uh, the story you're referring to that that I had mentioned to you was when I was a resident and we would pick up a box, a metal box that had our opiates in it, and we would put it, uh, you know, uh, lock it onto the top of the anesthesia cart. And at some point in my residency, somebody obviously was doing a project and they put a little chart in there that said how much each medication that was in there cost. And it was amazing to see how much more remifentanil and sufentanil were compared to regular fentanyl. And I think it did decrease the use of the more expensive medications. Um, so I think that can be worthwhile as well. So uh, so choosing wisely, we said, uh, can these are goals. People can look it up. It's yes. a website. Right? Yes, it's a website. And it's designed for medical providers and for patients so that patients can think about when their when their doctor tells them that they need a certain test, you know, can we have a discussion about it? I think it's trying to drive discussions, which is a really nice a nice mission, you know, so right. that we have shared decision making. It's a great resource. I've gone through every single one of them. I think if you're trying to do high value quality improvement, it's a great place to start. You can just go through and pick five or ten of them and try and implement them. And it's another a way that's been very effective for us is to engage the residents. They all want to do quality improvement work. Right. And engaging across specialties too. So for some, so if you were going to do, for example, a lot of the transfusion projects that were done here were done with anesthesia and surgery or anesthesia and medicine, and building these teams to collaborate and work together, it's a great way to start if you want to get in, you know, begin working on ways to improve the value in your health system. Right. I think it's a great point, and you know, for residents or anyone out there listening. Um, residents are required by the ACGME to have a quality improvement project, so that's a, certainly a possibility. But this makes it so easy. You go to this website. There's all these things that are evidence-based recommendations. Yes. You don't have to do a lit search. You already right. know that the evidence is there just by the fact that it's listed on this website. If you're at an institution that hasn't done anything around blood use, like you, like you said, Pam, this is this is right out there for you. Right, and actually, and the publication that the other publication I shared with you that came from the High Value Practice Academic Alliance, we have teams of faculty from multiple institutions writing these blueprints on exactly how to implement a blood management program, on how to get rid of CKMB. And those are in JAM Internal Medicine. They provide exactly everything down from the clinical decision support message to who the stakeholders need to be, what you should be measuring before and after. So you know, we're trying to provide resources. Another great resource if you want to reduce unnecessary imaging, the American College of Radiology has a program called R-Scan, and they map out exactly what you need to do if you want to reduce use of routine chest x-rays in the intensive care unit, um, you know, with a team approach of radiology and, and critical care. Right. That's fantastic. Yeah. So really 
talk about making it easy, getting rid of that activation energy to, to do a, a really meaningful quality improvement project, whether you're a faculty member who you know wants to get involved in this space or a resident who needs a project, um, this is really uh, quite a way to make it easier for you to do. So that's fantastic. Pam, do you think, uh, or I guess, what do you think the biggest barriers are to implementing high-value care? We've talked about some of them, but if you had to say, what do you think? Why why aren't we doing this everywhere? Well, you measure. You mentioned litigation, mm-hmm. right? Uh, another one is, and, and also just people people are resistant to change, especially when they've done something a certain way for twenty years. Also, if you look at it from a health system approach, you it, it's this is. You need time to implement these programs. So basically, a hospital has to finance a program that's going to reduce their revenue. So, right, right. <laughs> so I think that's going to be a really big barrier. Now, we, prac- we have a different reimbursement system here in Maryland, but in, in other states where things are fee-for-service, you know, it's going to really affect their, the, their finances. And so I think that's a big barrier. Sure. And you'll see that a lot of work of this work is being driven by younger faculty and residents who are really passionate about it, a lot of hospitalists, um, and that really and that's where it's growing. And then they, they, they create these committees like Lenny and Amit did that then become bigger and bigger and reach the health system level and then the then they have to negotiate to get health system support. Right. Now, we actually, at our conference last year, we asked them, what is the biggest barrier? And it yeah. was the fact that they could not get leadership to invest. Interesting. Yeah. So are there, uh, is anyone coming up with incentives uh, well, to try to make this more It's all going to change. I'm sure yeah. it's all going to change. I mean, you, you see CMS has already created quality reimbursement metrics. CMS now mandates that all ordering providers have to consult a clinical decision support tool to order CT MR or nuclear medicine on outpatients and emergency department patients. Mm. And it's, I mean, it's very tightly regulated where if you don't, if you, if the tool's not used, radiology won't get reimbursed. And if the provider is, goes through this, you, they're actually getting graded while they're ordering. They don't even know it. Mm. If they're deemed an outlier, they have to get pre-approval. So there's, there, there's, we're going to see more of that. We're going to see a lot of value reimbursement restrictions. You can see insurance companies. But my fear is that you don't want it to be cost-driven. Like the insurance companies, sometimes the decisions that they make are more based on cost than quality. Right. We want it to be quality-driven, and that's why we really have to step up and make the changes and set the benchmarks ourselves. Right. So you're referring to, you know, if we do what's right for the patients in terms of providing high-quality but not unnecessary care, right. then we're going to be out ahead of this instead of having outside organizations mandating to us what we can and can't do. That's exactly correct. That's what we need to do. Great. I couldn't agree more. So are there, um, obviously EMRs are certainly, if not ubiquitous, getting there. Um, We mentioned that putting up cost in the EMR is not effective. Are people still kind of playing around with how to make EMRs help us with this? Uh, what about alerts that pop up? I think we tend to ignore most of those, but is there any, do we know about anything in which, any way in which the EMR is helpful? Yes, well, the EMR can be, it can be helpful. Some alerts can be helpful. We just have to be judicious in how we use them, and they really need to be carefully designed so that you're not disenfranchising patients who really might benefit from the test. So it's a little bit complicated. Fortunately, we have a very rigorous team here that decides about which of these we're going to implement and and vets them very carefully to make sure that you didn't accidentally, you know, reach out to a pediatric set of patients that should not have been included in right. in your intervention. 
education is key and beyond, you know, like you said, you had a little note in your box, right? Right. Education can take many forms. It can be uh, screensavers. We've had people, you know, give out little buttons with reminders the, or, or a picture on the workstation of somebody with a message. You know, I find that if you can do it in a way that's kind of entertaining, people actually might not ignore it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And and education can be even broader. We have online modules. Everybody hates online modules, but we've created a lot of short ones, and we've even created a CME course to teach about ordering imaging, and we're going to expand it to being imaging in labs, too, so that people can come and learn and get credit for it. Yeah, yeah. that's great. you got to do CME anyway. You might right. as well do this one. Yeah, right. That's great. Well, I think this is really important stuff. You know, when I think about when I'm attending in the ICU, and as I said, there's there's certain things I would highly recommend that people do. One is checking each on each patient, discussing the labs that are getting ordered, as we said, and thinking about them. Uh, you you gave me this article that we'll put up about the uh, changes they made uh, in the SICU and how they were able to cut back on ABGs. And again, one of the reasons for that is if you really think about it. We order way too many ABGs. You can use pulse ox to get your oxygenation. You can get a lot about a patient's breathing and circulation and their oxygenation from looking at the patient and doing an exam and seeing how they're doing clinically. A patient who's not on oxygen and is up walking around and not short of breath probably doesn't need an ABG. So uh, there's a lot of just thinking about the patient, realizing what you're ordering automatically without thinking about it. Uh, asking about, so we still catch all the time, we'll say, who actually needs a chest x-ray tomorrow? And we'll realize that, you know, two-thirds of the patients who don't need them had them ordered already. So we'll cancel those orders. But it doesn't happen unless you make a conscious effort on rounds to think about what you're doing and whether you need to do those things. And I always ask people, I ask my residents and, and fellows, can you, do we need an ABG? And if, we, if you think we need it, can, what do we need from it? Right? What are we actually trying to get? Or do we need a CBC? What are we trying to get from that? And if the answer is, well, we just want to know the hemoglobin, maybe we can send a whole blood hemoglobin. I don't actually know that that's cheaper, but we should find that out. Because if it is, we don't need the platelets. We don't need the white count in this patient. We just want to know the hemoglobin. And so it may be that we don't need to send that whole CBC. If all you need is a creatinine, Maybe you can just send the creatinine. Maybe you don't have to have the whole basic metabolic panel. You certainly don't need the whole complete metabolic panel if all you want to get is a creatinine. So I think thinking about those things is key. And if you're out there listening and you want to know more interventions, again, check out the Choosing Wisely site. We'll put that up on the on our website as well um, so that you can get some good ideas. Pam, anything else you think we should let people know before we go? No, I think this has been really great. I'm very impressed with how, what you're doing on rounds. I think that's going to be very effective. Great. Yeah. Well, thank you very much, and thanks for coming on the show. Thank you. All right. Fantastic to have Pam on the show. If you are out there and you're looking for a quality project, check it out. Check out the uh, Choosing Wisely campaign website. Again, I'll post that with the show notes. There's a lot of great stuff you can get involved in here. Uh, But let us know. Go to the website, ACRAC.com. What are you doing to improve the delivery of high-value care at your institution? Are you involved? Let us know. Do you have suggestions for people who want to get involved? You can leave a comment, and we can all learn from the comments you leave at ACRAC.com. Of course, you can also reach me at ACRAC at ACRAC.com. And if you are a fan of the show, take a minute, consider go to iTunes, leave a comment and a rating. It helps other people find the show when they're searching in the iTunes store for an anesthesia podcast. It helps them find this one. 
If you are a supporter of the show, if you want to be uh, a supporter of trying to help uh, defray the cost of making the show, which of course is free and available to everybody, uh, consider going to patreon.com, patreon.com slash ACRAC, that's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash A-C-C-R-A-C, where you can become a patron of the show. Even if you just give a dollar or two, it really helps defray the cost. It really helps, and we really appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right, that is it for today. Thanks for listening. For the ACRAC Podcast and Dr. Pam Johnson, I'm Jed Wolpaw. Remember, what you're doing out there every day is really important and valued. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.